For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about things that matter, skip things that don't. Mostly, we're just trying to discern the times we live in. And in a matter of doing that, let's talk about something I saw on a Twitter thread that I think is a real good point to point out. We don't just want to talk about the headlines because what happens is you just end up reacting. How do you read those headlines? What do those headlines mean? Sometimes we even delve into how those headlines got there. And there's patterns to headlines. We call them things like narratives and sorts like that. But look, there's a cycle to these things. There's a narrative to these things. There's a business model to those things. Darren Johnson, he's a writer. We're going to link to it. This is a Twitter thread he put together. Quoting from him here, that article about having books in the house being smug and middle class attracted a lot of comment and derision. I remember that when I saw it. It was out of The Guardian. But it comes from a long line of, quote, love something. This is why it's bad school of journalism. And he has a thread of these. Let's just go through these real quick. The first one is The Guardian. This is the one he's referring to. Reading is precious, but the cult of book ownership can be smug and middle class by Rihanna Lucy Coslett. Okay, well, here's another headline. Guardian, Fleabag is a work of undeniable genius, but it's for posh girls. That's a TV show for those of you that don't know. Uh, that's a Guardian headline. Here's one about Rishi Sunak. Opinion, this is from The Independent. Your quote-unquote strange crush on Rishi Sunak could just be a racist fetish. That's an interesting one. Let's go to another Guardian one. Uh, why Ivanka Trump's new haircut should make us very afraid. Okay. Uh, how about this one from The Guardian? When will the white rockumentary conveyor belt end? Enjoy rockumentaries, Darren commented here. This is why you might be a white supremacist. That's an interesting take. Why populists, this is a Guardian headline, why populists adore cats and use them in their political propaganda. Boy, there's a whole lot more populists than I thought then if that's the case because Twitter is just cats all over the place. I have posted pictures of my daughter's cat, so I guess I'm guilty of that one. How about this one, another Guardian headline. Britain has spoken and chosen a vicious murdering bully as its national bird. Seriously. Uh, here's another one. It's ghost slavery. That's in quotes. The Troubling World of Pop Holograms. Now, this one's a little different. I get what they're getting at here because they're saying the person can't consent to it, but there's things like estates and intellectual property involved here. So, no, it's not ghost slavery. That's a little goofy. Uh, how about this one? Opinion. This is New York Times. The class politics, the class politics of decluttering. Okay, that's an interesting one. Mary Kondo is a political statement now, and apart from just being creepy to me uh this one from the guardian more bank holidays 
oh, please give us a break. If you want more holidays, apparently you have classism issues. That's a new one. Uh, how about this one? Superhero movies have never seen more obscene. And the idea is that the public doesn't need vengeance and spandex right now. We need voting and vaccines. Good Lord. Uh, people under stress of things like viruses probably just need to see a movie to detach. Look, I don't like superhero movies either, but it's because I can't stand all the CGI and the formula of them, not because of that. Uh, I've never seen the Blues Brothers from The Guardian. Uh, okay, fine. Enjoy swimming? How dare you? Nature does not exist for your benefit. Listen to this one. R.I.P. Wild Swimming. Nature's cure-all has thrown in the towel because of environmental concerns. Well, I guess that depends on where you're swimming. This goes on and on and on for a couple more threads. Uh, another good one is, is, it, is it time we ditched the word gardening, gardening from the observer in The Guardian? All right, look. Here's how this is. There's a very definitive strand of journalism that goes this. He's calling it love something. This is why it's bad. What it really is, is guilt journalism. It's really a guilt tactic. If you love this, this is why it's bad. That's just a natural hook to a piece. But why does this keep happening? Well, let's be honest. These are business models. If they keep doing it, it's because it's working. So why is it working? Well, because it plays people's guilt. Look, human nature is undefeated. We talk about it on this program all the time. So, of course, if you can tap into a little bit of guilt or anger and outrage for people who aren't guilty but just think it's ridiculous, both of those clicks pay those platforms exactly the same amount of money. You see where I'm going with this? It's important in our media to not just understand what we're consuming, but why it was presented to us to consume it in the first place. There's plenty of stuff out here like this that if it's bad, here's why. It's a natural hook. It brings you in. It's going to get an immediate response to you. There may be good content in there, but it's something to be aware of. That doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. doesn't mean there ain't a good reason to get into some of those pieces. But if they keep doing it over and over again, it means a lot of people are doing it, and we should understand it a little better. Most of those were cultural pieces. You do realize politics works the exact same way, right? You don't love your country unless you're not a real fill-in-the-blank unless... It's the exact same thing. They do it in political circles as well. They will guilt you. They will wave the flag at you. They will throw terminology at you. They will accuse you of not being blank or blank or down with blank or supporting blank unless you do exactly what they think. It's more guilt journalism. It's more you think that's good. This is why it's bad. And it's all manipulation. It's all part of the game, as they might say. We need to understand these headlines and understand why we're clicking on them and not just get wrapped up in reactionaryism. Most of this is designed not just for the content, but to get the reaction, because the reaction drives views, it drives clicks, that drives money, that drives revenue. Understand the game we're playing when we're dealing with news media. I don't begrudge them making money. Everybody should make as much money as they can as long as it's legal. God bless. But us as consumers of the news need to understand that, because once they start doing it for the business model, now it's fair for us to question their agendas in that. It's not that they're not allowed to make business. It's not allowed that they're not allowed to make money. It's just we need to understand that what they're feeding us over and over again, especially if they're going to feed us guilt trips over and over again, isn't because we did anything wrong and should feel guilty. It's because it's making them a lot of money. More Hertel right after this.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, I hadn't seen him in a minute. Glad to have him back. Jack Samuel back on the program with us. He comes from George Mason. He's got exciting new opportunities on the horizon, though. We'll ask him about that in just a minute. We're going to talk about the latest itineration of a very, very old problem, my friend. Jack, how are you? Great to have you back. I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be back here. Great to have you back. All right, here's the deal. I We were talking about this a minute before we started recording, though, but I would love to explain to 90s and 2000s political me the fact that we cannot even discuss Social Security now because it used to be the GOP. This is all they ever talked about. They would never be quiet about it. George W. Bush actually tried to do some legislative stuff on this. Why is the environment surrounding Social Security politically changed? We know financially this is one of those you know iceberg things. It's just coming, 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 coming. But politically, this discourse has really changed the last 10, 15 years, hasn't it? It certainly has. I, I often see similarities between Social Security in the US and the National Health Service back in my home country of the UK, it's really become the sort of crown jewels of American politics. Nobody dare touch it. Nobody dare talk about it. Any mention of even the smallest tweaks are shouted down as, as benefit cuts, even if that isn't the case. Yeah, here's the thing. The problem with this is Social Security was the government promising people money and taking people's money in the promise that they're going to get it back at some time. So just on a visceral, basic level, we can talk about all the policy, we can talk about all the math and whatever. That's what people hear. Hey, the government promised me this. They, I see it go out of my check. I want it back. I don't, I don't know that you're going to ever have a policy discussion that's going to break through that understanding for most people. Is that a fair way to put the problem? That, that is a fairly accurate uh, way to look at it. There's, there's actually a, 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 a quite a broad misconception that people have about Social Security. They tend to think that as they pay in, the money they're paying in goes into a special fund reserved just for them. And when they retire, they pull from that very fund. In actual fact, the, the payees, the people who are paying the payroll taxes today, they're actually financing the retired people today. So it's, it's essentially going out as, as quick as it's going in. So there isn't actually a fund that's reserved for you once you reach retirement. If you're a younger person like myself, you're probably not going to see the types of generous benefits that current beneficiaries are receiving because the pool of funds is getting smaller and smaller. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, it's, it's eventually going to reach depletion. Yeah. And Jack Salmon joining us. Look, math is math. Math isn't changing. And we can talk about, you know, when's it going to go insolvent, cuts, cuts to projected growth, cuts to projected decline. People's eyes just kind of roll in the back of their head when they start getting into the deep numbers of here. Give me one or two of the top line numbers that when they pop up in a headline, people should be paying attention to. Is it the percentage we're spending on it? Is it the rates of growth? Is it what's the number that folks should kind of cut through the noise? And even if they don't understand the math, when they just hear that number or that term go, oh, that's the one I need to pay attention to here. 
as many numbers I could talk about, and being an economist, I'd like to talk about a lot of them. But if I have to talk about one, it would be a percentage, and it would be a 23%. 23% is the, the estimated cut in Social Security benefits that is automatically built into the system that the Social Security Tr Board of Trustees estimates will happen in 2034 if we do nothing. And the CBO recently released a report and they estimate 2033. So we've got about a decade when that 23% benefit cut comes in if we do nothing. So that's a good number to keep in mind. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. Here's the larger problem with all this. And again, the numbers depend because the numbers are on projections and cost of living. So the numbers move around a little bit. Somewhere right around that 20, 21%, 22%, that's the percentage of the U.S. budget that's going to Social Security. That is an enormous chunk of money. Bigger picture, though, if you put Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, ACA, and all the other health stuff all together, now you're getting almost to 50% of the federal budget in, in entitlements. So there's no way that you're ever going to do anything like spending cuts, entitlement cuts, anything without touching half of the U.S. budget politically nobody's going to touch half of the U.S. budget. This is just the rock and the hard place reality of where we're at on this, right? Correct. And that was that was part of my uh, reasoning for, for writing that piece that I wrote, because I know there's a, there's a lot of disagreement on these issues. There are proposals from people on the left who want to raise payroll taxes, especially payroll taxes on the rich as they see it. And then any sort of even minor suggestion of reduction in benefits or raising the retirement age is always met with strict opposition. So the purpose of my piece was to try and offer some sort of middle of the road options for policymakers to find consensus on. So I talked about things like small adjustments in the in the retirement age. So when the social security program was first founded in the 1930s, they determined that 65 was an appropriate age because it was around life expectancy at the time. And so it was a program meant for those who had stopped working and were living in poverty. There was a very small number of people that fell into that category. Now, since then, the average life expectancy has risen about 15 years, but the retirement, the, the retirement age to claim four benefits has only risen by three. So there's a huge, there's a huge gap there now. And um, that's that's obviously a, a large part of the problem. So that's one of that's one of the solutions is to is to make small tweaks to the retirement age. Another one would be to change the cost of living adjustment. So people who are receiving Social Security benefits this year, they're going to get an 8.7% increase in the benefits compared to last year. And that, that's an astronomical increase in benefit payments. It's, it's, it's truly unsustainable. So changing the way that we measure the, um, the cost of living adjustment, rather than using the CPI, if we instead use what's called the chain CPI, it's a slight, a very, very slightly um, lower than these than the than the headline cpi so it would it would be tiny minuscule changes in benefits maybe beneficiaries would get about four dollars a month less than they would otherwise get but it makes a big difference to the overall budget when you consider there are 65 million beneficiaries on this program yeah and another thing you touched on in your piece we're going to link to it jack sam's piece in real clear policy we'll link to it make sure you read through the whole piece yourselves also got a couple links in there that are really important to dig into like eligibility requirements things like this I've already done it a couple of times just in this short amount of time we've been covering We use Social Security as a really big umbrella term for a whole lot of stuff when you get into the details. Like you said, you're an economist. Social Security means many different things. And I just did it, so I'm guilty of this too. Social Security can mean just regular retirement for folks. That's how a lot of people see it. Oh, that's going to be a big chunk of my retirement. Um, but there's also Social Security disability. There's old age and benefits survivors. There's a lot of other things under the umbrella 
walk through the terminology for just a second, though, that maybe part of this problem is we've got a lot of stuff built in under, quote unquote, Social Security when we're talking about it like this. When you go to put it to pen and paper and policy in the black and white of the law, it's way more complicated than just that. Yeah, that's quite right. And uh, I just briefly build off something you mentioned that is, you know, when you're thinking about Social Security, you're really thinking about your retirement funds. So this includes your private retirement savings, you have a 401k or you have an IRA, those should be your priorities. Whether or not you're considering changes in, in Social Security in the future, you should really be prioritizing saving as much as you can in your private accounts, in your in your work-based retirement accounts, because those are the funds that you can actually rely on um, and there won't be benefit cuts to those. Uh, they also tend to grow much faster because they're, they're more diversified, which is another issue with the Social Security Trust Fund. It's, it's not diversified, it grows at two or 3% per year with its interest rates. But yeah, you're quite right that it's it's, it's more than just uh, retirement benefits. A large chunk of the budget is also um, what we call social security disability insurance. And so that's for uh, workers who have been deemed ineligible to work because of a disability. And there's about 12 million workers who are currently claiming that, that benefit. So that also pulls from the social security uh, trust funds as well. So it's, it, it, it's really a diverse range of different programs rolled into one very large program that's, that, as we say, it's going insolvent. Jack Salmon joining us. You mentioned the SSDI portion of this. This is up to almost 12 million Americans that get SSDI, but you actually brought up part of what's the real problem with it. Yes, there's eligible. We could talk about eligibility and things like that. One of the built-in problems with SSDI is it's all or nothing disability. There's no range to it. You get everything or you get nothing. And if you get everything, you can't work at all. This is separate from other federal systems like VA disabilities for the veterans, where it's based off of what you physically are, your physical incapacitations based off what you could previously do. You get it, but you can still work. You get a percentage. Some of this is just stuff in the policy of writing like all or nothing language like SSDI. There seems like there's a lot of regulatory and legislative room to do some real reform in here without having to get into that sticky thing of, oh, we're taking benefits from people. We could do some small stuff in here like maybe having a step program to SSDI so more people are eligible for it, but they're eligible for a percentage that reflects what they need. Just little ideas like that that we could do instead of this whole reform Social Security that's never going to get any political traction. Right. And and the, the eligibility aspect is, is is really quite problematic. A lot of those eligibility requirements came in in the 1980s. And one of the, just, just to give one example, one of the um, regulations is called the medical vocational grid. And it it was really changing the way in which physicians um, define disabilities and it made it much more vague. So there was a huge explosion in uh, disabilities such as musculoskeletal disease and mental mental disorders because those are quite hard to define, they're quite hard to diagnose. And so that, those now make up the vast majority of all claims on those programs. And we've, we've seen something like a five-fold increase just in the last couple of decades. Um, one of the lessons that that, that can be drawn from this is is to look to international examples. So I often look to the UK because that's where I'm from, and I'm quite familiar with with the public policy space there. And 
after 2010, there were some uh, reforms made to the disability insurance program in the UK. One of the key distinctions that they made was, was making a very clear distinction between what a disability, whether a worker was disabled or whether a worker was incapacitated. So you can be disabled and you can carry out certain certain roles, certain kinds of jobs. And so making that distinction was very important in helping people get back to work. But it also meant that those disabled workers who were able and willing to work were able to make more money and they weren't facing those sorts of benefit cliffs that, that we often see here in the US that disincentivize workers from even looking for work. Yeah. And here's another example, since you just brought it up, something I'm familiar with. One of the reasons I do what I do now where I got to where I couldn't work a real job. Technology has changed now where people can work from home and they can't even folks with physical or mental or whatever disabilities the technology hasn't been written into these laws to catch up. So that's another policy area where you could probably do a whole lot of good with a little bit of tweaking without getting into the whole mess of the whole thing, you would think, if you had a little bit of willpower and some legislators that wanted to do it. That's certainly something that should be taken into consideration. When you really think about it, most of this legislation was drafted before the invention of the internet. So when you consider those those those, those types of facts, it, it, it really sort of brings it home to the fact that, you know, these aren't, most workers today aren't going down mines. They aren't lumberjacks. The vast majority of them are working office jobs or service sector jobs where they're really not doing hard manual labor. And so we should logically be seeing a huge decrease in disability claims, given this trajectory and the change of the workplace and the change of the work workplace environments. But we've actually seen quite the opposite. So there's something definitely to look into there. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. You touched on it earlier, but I don't want to gloss over because I think this is a really important piece. A lot of people have started to pay attention to things like COLA, cost of living adjustments on all kinds of benefits, on paycheck benefits, because inflation is a big story right now. And so everybody, people that have any kind of benefits or pay that's tied to COLA, they got a big jump. They're like, oh, I got a big jump. It's like, well, no, that's actually bad because that means the inflation rate went high. Talk about how much something like COLA, and I know you were talking about tweaking it to change and that sort of thing. People that are just now paying attention to it, this is something they should always be paying attention to. It's almost like your tax returns, like, oh, I got a big tax return. It's like, well, yeah, but a big picture, that may not be the best thing for you. Just walk people through the COLA and how these things go together, especially when you start talking about something like a Social Security benefit. Sure. So in the context of Social Security benefits, um, the, the purpose behind the COLA is to ensure that those receiving their benefits keep up uh, a bare minimum with the cost of living. So as in as inflation if, if inflation exceeds to high levels the cost of living adjustment will reflect that that, that built-in inflation so it will adjust benefits upwards um, one of the issues with the cola is particularly with social security is that if we experience deflation which which we rarely do but in in, in some rare circumstances the cola remains unchanged so you don't actually you never actually see decreases in benefits uh, worst case scenario you see a you see a zero percent change in your, in your benefits year to year. But you're quite right that it's it's an important aspect when talking about the inflation debate, because it tends to go both ways. And um, I, I was reviewing the, the wage data that came in this morning with the, with the PCE release. And for the first time in a very long time, government wages are now outstripping private sector wages. And one of the reasons for this is most government jobs tend to have colas that, that, that are tied to, to rates of inflation, whereas the private sector tends to give raises based on value creation. And so there's that very clear distinction there that we're now seeing a divergence between the private sector and the public sector. Yeah, Jack Salmon, one last quick question on this and we'll move along. But what is the 
future of this? Because obviously there's not a political will to touch a lot of this stuff. Is there any hope that we're going to get any kind of traction on any of this other than when it just becomes an emergency and then we have to do something about it? You know, it's this is one of those issues where I, I, I often have little hope for change when it comes to policymakers actually doing anything. But I have slightly more hope this year, given the particular circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, we, we have a divided government, so that often pushes more bipartisan uh, consensus on these sorts sorts of issues. At least we would hope. We have a debt ceiling debate. I believe we've we've effectively reached the debt ceiling, and we're now seeing extraordinary measures implemented by the Treasury. And so that's a debate that's going to be going on for the next six months or so. And so that also adds pressure for policymakers to make reforms. At the same time, I'm seeing more calls than ever from both sides uh, to protect Social Security and to prioritize social security if there were to be any spending cuts in, it implemented. So I try I try to remain optimistic that now is a better time than, than we've seen perhaps since since the last big debates on, on austerity back in 2011. But at the same time, it, um, it's it's the chances of actually seeing real change are, are probably quite slim. Yeah, Jack Salmon, always appreciate your insight, my friend. He's an economist, one of these conveyor belt of economists coming out of George Mason. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on the program again, where they can find you, what work you're doing, and until we see you again, my friend. Yeah, the best place to find me and, and, my, and my work, my articles are posted there as well as my interviews, is my Young Voices bio page. So just search my name, Jack Salmon, on the Young Voices bio page. And then also my Twitter handle is on the same page if you're interested in following me on Twitter. Yep, we'll follow and have all those links on the show notes, including his social media. And this piece, please read the whole thing, Real Clear Policy. Jack Salmon, always enjoy the chat, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Always glad to be here. Thank you, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. 
I look forward to seeing you. Uh, welcome back to Her Tale. We're going to have some fun with this one. Talking a little culture and, more importantly, shopping. Uh, she does comms for John Locke, but she's been a friend of ours for a long time. Way before I even had Her Tale, we were doing stuff with her. Brooke Medina, great to see you again, my friend. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Andrew. I am always ready to talk about shopping and retail. I like that maybe even more than policy. So let's go. One pays the bills and the other one is why you have bills to pay. I see how that works. Makes a nice, tight little circle. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this Maria Kondo thing. I don't want to make fun of her particularly. Like, look, she made her brand. She's got a lot more money than we're ever going to see. She became a phenomenon. But this Guardian story came out. We'll link to it. Where she basically like, yeah, I gave up on keeping things uncluttered because now I've got children. Um, we have a mess of kids between the two of us with our respective families. So we somewhat have some expertise in this thing. Here's the way I want to tackle this, though. Look, I'm an HGTV guy. I like watching HGTV. I love watching, you know, House Hunters and the cleaning stuff and all that. I like Food Network. There is definitely a thing in our culture where we're just selling perfect to people on TV. I don't find it to be particularly healthy. And I'm not just picking on Marie Kondo here, although that's the one we're dealing with. There's a lot of this going on. I don't think it's particularly healthy, is it? No, it's not healthy nor helpful. I think that I get that people want aspirational sort of encouragement when they're watching like an HGTV fixer upper or talking about ordering your lives. I think that's good um, when it's properly understood in the context of reality. Um, and then there's the other end of that spectrum where people like watching, you know, a bunch of schmuck on TV with people in their reality, like lives that are crazy. So that's the other end of the spectrum. And I think that's also unhealthy um, when we're just kind of like Schadenfreude all the time about other people's messed up lives. But um, with the whole like Marie Kondo tidying up, keeping everything pristine, uh, it's just not attainable once you get to a certain phase or season in life. And so it was a little freeing. I, I would say it's, it was not Schadenfreude that I had for Kondo. It was like tidy Freud. I was very happy that she had kind of joined the rest of us parents of multiple children and uh, was ready to admit defeat on the clutter wars. Yeah. And here's the thing that we get into this. It, my general rule on reality TV shows are I have very little sympathy for anybody because they all sign these things called releases that people don't talk about. But you get, there's a reason cops, you had those blurred pictures back the original. Like they didn't sign a release. So their picture gets blurred. Right. Everybody signed a release. You can see their face. So they all signed up for it. They knew what they were getting into. There is a spectrum on this stuff, even though reality TV isn't my favorite thing in the world. There's aspirational, like you said. So there's stuff that I think gets really deep into exploitive that I don't like. There's some of these weight loss shows that I think are just very exploitive. You have things like, you know, the hoarder shows, things like that. I don't think she was a bad show. I do think when you have something like that, you know, I'm just being honest. This is just my opinion. It does rub me the wrong way a little bit of like, oh, everything in your life will be joyful if it's perfect. And I know her fans are going to fill up my inbox. I get it. I know it was finding joy and then find the tightness. I get it. But I just, you know, we have real lives. My house isn't perfectly clean, but it's cluttered because I got a bunch of people living up in here. Like, I just worry that we need to do a little bit better drawing of lines of aspirational, like you said, and avoid some of the more exploitative things. 
not only the exploitative things, just things that are going to be out of reach, like having the perfect meals, like having the perfect house, like having the perfect real estate. I think perfect is the enemy of good here in a very, very real way. Oh, yeah. And I would say just scrolling Instagram a little bit, you see this this preoccupation in such an unhealthy way with things being perfect, with ourselves being perfect. Look, I'm an Enneagram type three. So some people will roll their eyes and other people's ears will perk up over here. Um, I am one of those people that is probably described as a perfectionist. And so I love to be able to achieve things and have an orderly life. But there comes a point in time when you shouldn't keep seeking balance. You need to seek order. And I would say a lot of what we see in the mainstream when people are like doing self-help stuff is, well, you need a balance and you need to find like equal parts in your life for X, Y, and Z. And I would say it's actually more about ordering priorities. And so for Marie Kondo, she was helping some people figure out, okay, in the grand scheme of things, why am I acquiring all of this stuff? Why, it, like, is it actually bringing me joy in my life? So I think that's a valid question to ask is like the stuff that I am pursuing and seeking, does it actually make sense for my life? But then there comes a point in time where you just have to ask yourself, is this actually like my pursuit of the perfect or my pursuit of order? Is that actually taking first place over me just actually living my life and loving my family, taking care of my kids? And I think Marie found that answer was, yeah. And that's why it's taken a back seat now. And so she's spending time with her kids. That's her focus now. If stuff gets tidied, it gets tidy. And if it's not, then, you know, no biggie. It's not a reflection of our worth or our, our, our um, ability to be good parents. So that's freeing and that's encouraging to hear. Yeah. Brooke Medina joining us. I think you just hit on what's changed on some of this stuff. It's not just reality TV. It's the social media stuff. Everybody is projecting to some level. We all do it. Um, so I'll put my hand. But like this is when we do the Twitter Supper Club thing. You know, that's why I put my McDonald's cheeseburger, my little one dollar chicken sandwich that I like so much from McDonald's. I'll put that on there, too. Not just, you know, the perfectly cooked laid out steak. I was like, look, we keep it real. I don't cook high end, you know, seven days a week. Sometimes you just grab little Caesars and go, you know, the five buck and go with it. The the social media aspect of it, this this applies to our politics, it applies to our religion, it applies to our kids' sport. Look, how much of social media is just branding up and building up and bragging about our kids in some ways that sometimes get unhealthy as well. I think the social media aspect paired with the reality TV, paired with people being able to put themselves out there, I think that's the difference. I think you just got to start deciding, look, what is it that really bring, you know, to use her line, what brings me joy here? Just projecting something out that's not really real doesn't bring me joy. I try to put out, you know, I don't put all my business in the street, but I'm honest about struggling with things sometimes. I think you need that balance, even in your own social media to an extent, because it keeps you grounded and you don't just end up playing a character on your social media for everybody else's benefits. Yeah, that is something I think so many in our generation and younger generations struggle with is how much of this is actually necessary for me to share? Um, what is healthy? Where do I draw the line even when it comes to authenticity? So that's something we hear. It's a buzzword nowadays is the importance of being authentic, which I think is helpful. Um, but also there are limits to that because I would say even further upstream when it comes to like what we share online should also be the question of 
what do I owe this person? What do I owe the public versus what privacy I owe myself? And people can get addicted, I mean, to these likes, to this engagement and these comments. And I would say that's one of the disturbing elements of the social media marketplace nowadays is people feel like they are their own brand, that they are marketing themselves. That's how, I mean, that's how we talk about it now. It's like, I'm building my own personal brand. What does that even mean? You're a human being, just be yourself. And also have some sort of discretion. You don't have to put it all out there, but when you do put it out there, don't create some illusion. That's why I appreciate your your McDonald's posts and your, sometimes I think you've done Fruit Loops for Twitter Supper Club, which I love because, you know, it's just, not everything is going to be that five course meal each night. Um, not every day is going to be good for us. You know, sometimes we'll go through health struggles or family struggles and it's okay to be honest about that because no one is like, no one really, really wants to see your highlight reel all the time. People want you to actually be a, an, a real person because they know that's what you are at the end of the day anyways. But I do think that there is something important about just being discerning what we share online, whether it's the highlight reel or whether it's being, you know, very transparent, um, it's okay to have some privacy. And actually, I think it's good to have a little bit of mystery too. So that's my thought on the social media front. Yeah, you know, I, I take something from pro wrestling because they're the experts on faking it and making it look real. <laughs> there, there's an old saying in pro wrestling: it's like the the characters and the gimmicks and the guys that really succeeded, they're playing themselves. They just crank it up to eleven, right? So I like to say, you know, social media, that's pretty what you see is pretty much what you get for the look when I'm on a Fox News hit or something like that. No, that's not how I talk when I sit on the couch, but it, it's still me. It's just me turned up to eight or nine, whereas if I'm watching Downton Abbey on the couch, I'm at three or four. Right. But it's still me. It's just me at a little bit more volume. That's kind of the standard I try to use with my social media. And look, I got rules because I, I'm out there with my real name on stuff. That's also something I do for my own accountability. It's like, hey, this has got my name on it. I want to make sure it, you know, I'm behaving. You know, I don't, I don't do Facebook. I don't do stuff with my family. I don't have stuff with my kids out there except in the abstract of, hey, my kid did this or whatever, whatever. That's how I keep my prophecy. That's my line. Everybody's line's going to be different. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just the rule I use, like with the supper club or whatever. You know, if you balance it and you give people the good and the bad, they're going to start thinking you're more authentic anyway, just because it's like, oh, it's just not good. If you're just good all the time or just bad all the time, you're just going to turn people off anyway. And people aren't going to want to hear what you have to say about everything else. Yeah. They, well, they won't take you seriously. It will just be you're, you either become this ideal where people are like, you know, I just want to be like you kind of thing because they haven't seen like the ugly side of you yet. Or you become this person where it's just like, oh, they are very much oversharing. They got problems. I feel good about myself now. Um, and I do think it's just, it's one of those areas of our life where I think we have become so just, so just immersed in the social media world and sharing as a regular part of our like daily liturgy that uh, it takes some discipline to actually reflect and think, is this something I should be sharing with the public? Uh, what do I owe my family to your point about keeping your kids like information private? They people know you're a parent, but they don't have a lot of detail about your children. Um, that's certainly how I've approached it as well. I keep my family information private out of respect for them, especially given the nature, you know, when you're commenting on political stuff, you have your share of trolls. And so why would I make my family's information more available for them? Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's whether it's the Marie Kondo tidying up and that 
desire to have everything organized in one's life or to project organization, I think it really comes down to just being comfortable with ourselves and understanding really what matters. And for Marie, it's she's realizing it's her kids. They're their top priority. And so she doesn't have to maintain this sort of tranquil setting all the time in her house and declutter all the time. And that is so freeing. I've been a mom for many years now. I have four children. And the less I tried to emulate other people and I just mothered or worked or was a friend from my own strengths rather rather than trying to tap into someone else's idea of perfection, the more free I was to actually just be a good friend, be a good mom. Yeah, the the Maria Kondo, the TV show, not her personally, that creeped me out. I'll just be honest. That that was too positive and too organized. And like, I just, eh, it made me cringy. I felt better too when she's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm raising kids now. I just want my kids to be good. I actually felt better about that. All right. <laughs> Brooke Medina joining us. Let's talk about one of those things that make you very happy. See, this is part of being a friend. You got to know what your friends really like. I have something that's going to thrill your soul. So out in LA, we will link to this piece, KTLA. They are building a mixed-use complex. This is a very special mixed-use complex, though, because I'm making sure you're sitting down for this. They're going to put 800 apartment buildings over top of a Costco. Now, I don't want to dox you, so I won't tell them exactly. They can read the piece of where you will be living in a few years. I have no doubt. But mixed-use apartment buildings over a Costco, I got to think you're a big in on this one. Oh, my gosh. Like, I actually had seen that head headline before, like, a couple of days ago. And I just thought, why hadn't I thought of that? That is, that is like, heaven on earth. That is, you know, when we talk about city planning and the importance of urban living done right. Like that's it done right. I wouldn't even leave my complex. I would go straight. There would, there would be an elevator from my apartment to the Costco bakery section where I get my free cookie and I get all my rosemary baked bread, my Caesar salad, my rotisserie chicken, and I take the elevator back up. I would do that every day. They would know me so well. Now, I won't even lie here. One of my favorite restaurants I go to in Northridge, and I'm not going to dox them either because I like to eat out up in Raleigh. They've got the Harris Teeter with the condos over top of it. And you can you can go to Harris Teeter in an elevator from your condo straight down to the hair. I could never afford to live there, but I'm like, yeah, one of my favorite sushi places right across the street. And there's a Harris Teeter right there. You know where I'm talking about. I see the grin. Like I, I could do this. This would be okay. This would work. I would never be able to afford it. We're joking about it a little bit, but mixed use stuff like that, there is a quality of life involved in it. I know it's not for everybody. Look, I'm a, I'm still a mountain kid. I like my mountains. But when I'm in the city, you know, I like walkability. I like being able to do things all at once. This kind of urban planning makes a lot of sense. It's interesting at the Costco because that's one of your favorite things. It is all the sense in the world to talk about livability, but in a practical way like this, not just drawing straight lines on a map and saying, hey, we're going to put high-speed rail here across this mountain through the Okie Swamp, which you'll never be able to do. This makes sense. I actually like this kind of pot. And you can talk about policy and politics in this way because it's a practical thing. People look at it and go, oh, wouldn't that be nice? 
Yeah, I mean that they actually are continuing or increasing their zoning in various cities in the U.S. to include like mixed use zoning like this so that it's residential, it's uh, it's commercial. I think that's excellent because that seems to be definitely where the market is going, especially with family sizes getting smaller. Um, although, yeah, it will be interesting to find out like what is the average apartment size there because we all know Costco comes in big, big boxes like all of their items do. And so I hope those apartments have really large pantries or an excellent recycling service so you can get rid of those boxes. But I think that that's part of the larger conversation around what does the market actually want in cities right now? Do we want just like just urban sprawl all the time where everything's single family zoning and the neighborhoods have, um, you know, half acre lots or do more and more people, especially those because they're delaying families or having families and being married. So there's a lot of single uh, uh, single folks that are just looking to have a one bedroom apartment what makes sense for their needs. And I would say mixed use development like that is excellent. And I mean, if they have a three or four bedroom available, I'm definitely looking at moving the Medina family in. I mean, we're joking about it and you're a huge fan of Costco, but there, there's some economics to this too. Um, news headline just came out. This is out of the Dallas Morning News, but it's other places. It's an AP story. I'll link to it. Costco and HEB have knocked off Amazon as the top US grocer. So even in this digital, that's pumping, even in this digital world, what is it about? And you have a large family, so that's part of it, but that's not all of it. For people that aren't familiar, for people that aren't familiar with bulk places like you know Sam's Club, we don't have a Costco where I go. We go to Sam's, Sam's Club, Costco, those kind of stores. What the appeal is and what it does practically to a family, especially a larger family, when you're buying in a place like that, and why they're so popular. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is that. Sometimes we are inclined to think that the more options we have, the happier we'll be. But Costco really only offers about one-tenth in terms of options that a regular grocery store would offer. And so part of it is the reduction in what is available and the bulk that it's available in is something that, in the spirit of Marie Kondo, it is tidying our, you know, our options and our choices and making it a little bit more streamlined so that we're not constantly standing in front of a, a number of different types of chocolate chips. There's only the Kirkland chocolate chips and maybe the Nestle kind. And I think that has its own sort of attraction and appeal. Uh, so that's part of it. But also another part is the prices are just a lot better oftentimes. And so especially during high inflation times like now, and we're paying, you know, $50 an egg, uh, going to Costco and buying a couple dozen at once is actually really, really helpful. Um, I do have one recommendation for Costco in case like a Costco executive ends up li listening to this later. Can I share that? Sure. Of course you can. Yeah. So I have an idea of let's create the Costco's like the next round of them a lot more visually appealing. I want it to feel like I am in a terrarium. And so, you know, oftentimes the warehouse clubs have like the open i mean they're really really high ceilings sometimes there are like skylights there i want it all to be a big skylight i want greenery everywhere little sitting areas maybe a cafe so in addition to the food court you can get your big hot dog but then maybe you get like a cappuccino or something so i would even spend even more money than i already do if it was visually appealing because that is the downside to costco it is not necessarily eye candy 
but I mean, it makes my heart very happy, but it should be a little prettier, I think. Yeah, but you already know the answer to that is they're keeping costs down. And the first thing to keep costs down is get rid of the aesthetics. Like that's the entire point, but I, I take your point. All right, you just mentioned it. So let's end on something fun here. Costco's got a little bit of a problem here. Their famous $1.50 hot dog and soda combo, right? Legendary. Everybody knows about it. Sam's Club has undercut it by 12 cents. This is causing consternation and gnashing of teeth and renting of garments and all kinds of naughty words. I'm assuming your team Costco because you just basically did a per- commercial for them that we did not get sponsorship money for, <laughs> but we're available. DMs open Costco. Uh, $1.50 hot dog combination. I assume you're team Costco, but why is this so legendarily known and loved? And it's been this way since pretty much the eighties. Yeah, it's been this way since the eighties. And that's, I mean, there is that element of nostalgia. That is just, if you've been a Costco shopper for a couple of decades now, uh, you obviously, that's what you expect to see as well as a four ninety nine rotisserie chicken. Um, but it's also like, I don't know. It feels like Costco is sticking it to the feds this way. And they're like, you know what? Everything else in this world can go up, but our hot dogs, gosh darn it, are going to stay $1.50 for the hot dog soda combo. And I kind of like that. I I respect that game. Um, They can raise their prices on other things and people will learn to to adapt and they understand. But I don't know if Costco ever raised their price on that. I don't know if they could be forgiven. Harsh words from Brooke Medina. All right. This was fun. We were talking culture and stuff today, but you do have a day job over John Locke. Let folks know what you got going on. Uh, Your type of part of the country, North Carolina, going to be kind of mercifully spared too much derision in 2024, but you'll still be busy covering politics like you normally do. A lot of policy stuff going on. Let folks know where you're at, what you got going on, how they can follow you and the John Locke folks. We've had some of the other ones on on the program as well. Till we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Yeah, so we have a full suite of policy issues that we uh, that we are working on at the state level. So we like to think of ourselves as lobbyists for the state taxpayer. And so we have a huge agenda. We're working on affordable housing. Maybe we'll see some Costco multi-purpose uh, apartment unit complexes go up over here in Raleigh. Um, but you can keep up with all of our research at johnlock.org. You can also go to carolinajournal.com if you want to follow North Carolina political news or any or, or some really great opinion from writers based here in North Carolina. Yeah, I can't wait for your uh, white paper on why Costco needs to do a mixed-use retail residential space in your neck of the woods. We'll be watching for that. Brooke Medina, it's always fun, my friend. This was good. It's nice to talk a little culture with you. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. good note. I don't like the term woke. I don't use it. I try to avoid it when I can, because number one, it means whatever you want it to mean, because it's a made up term in the first place. I know a lot of people have their preconceived notions of it. Two is it's a big, broad brush that really doesn't do anything productive. Three is I just don't like it. It's silly. Let's get to the actual things and what people believe. Don't just stick labels on people that gets lazy and you don't really get anything accomplished with it. But lots of folks like to debate woke. It's the hot 
new trendy thing among the glitterati and the twitterati and all those other oddies of people that I don't really get invited to hang out with, but whatever. So this is a cool spin on it with a good ending to it. Let's go up to Connecticut. Uh, Kyle Melnick writing in Washington Post. When Carmen Cuerga, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm not, I apologize. When Carmen named her new breakfast restaurant, she wanted people to associate the cafe with waking up in the morning. She settled on woke breakfast and coffee and spent six months renovating a building and developing a logo. She moved to Coventry, Connecticut a few weeks before the restaurant's opening this month. When finalizing the permits at Town Hall, another resident advised her to check Facebook there. She saw several town residents criticizing her restaurant's name, suggesting she'd chosen woke to make a political statement. Now, this was completely false, she told the Washington Post. She filed, filled her days with work, and never watched the news. And after viewing Facebook, the research, the term's definition, and recognized the misunderstanding the name provoked. If nobody supports this, she recalled thinking, I'm going to lose everything. She's 42 years old. When woke opened on January 19th, however, she faced different stresses. Controversy spurred other residents to support the restaurant, which led to long lines and sold-out menu items. She became enamored with the food as a child in Mexico City, eating her mother's enchiladas and pozole. In 2005, she and her husband moved to Willamette, Connecticut, only speaking Spanish and setting work in the food industry. They cooked in restaurants in the following years, and then they opened Stiletta's Pizza and Restaurant in Granby, Connecticut in March of 2015. She worked 12 hours a day, but desired more time with her then nine-year-old son. She sold the Italian restaurant last summer to rent a white building in August for her breakfast cafe in downtown Coventry. She's only in works in the mornings and afternoons for more family time. When she planned renovations for the building, her 23-year now 23-year-old son created the logo featuring a fried egg in place of the O and woke. That's clever. I like that. The family included the logo on the restaurant's website, menus, and mugs. The shop's catchphrase, you woke up and made the right choice. I like it. After putting up a sign with the logo, though, the residents began condemning the restaurant's name. Still living about 40 miles away in Granby, she was unaware of the backlash until she moved to the town. About 2,000 people on Christmas Eve and visited Town Hall two weeks later to obtain signatures for her property's permits. That's when she learned about the controversy, which intensified on Facebook as the restaurant's opening approached. One commenter posted the restaurant would lose some Republican patrons, adding, the naming it woke, is that really such a good idea? Lord, people are dumb. Lisa Thomas, the Coventry Town Council's chairwoman, said about a dozen people left comments bashing the restaurant in a private town Facebook group. There you go, private, get it? Nobody actually saw this. It was just all talking amongst themselves. Facebook group's moderators later deleted the post for their insensitivity, Thomas said. Cuyoga packed and considered changing the name, but then she didn't have money for the rebranding. By the way, folks don't understand small businesses, things like signage, branding, logos, that's a big expense. You can't just willy-nilly do that stuff, not to mention in the digital age, that means you're probably going to have to change your domain and all your social media stuff, which is, if you don't know how to do it yourself, also a big expense. Back to the piece. Her anxiety persisted until opening day on January 19th. She said visitors to her small cafe, which only has nine tables, Nine Table Cafe, people are getting in a twist over. Just imagine how small your life has to be. Saw an hour-long wait. Restaurant soon ran out of ingredients for its Mexican egg dishes. She said many customers comforted her, claiming the offensive comments didn't represent the opinions of most residents. Coventry Republican Town Committee also came in support of Woke last week, writing, while the name at first may set off some conservative alarm bells, it's clear the owner never intended it to be a political statement. After weeks of restlessness over the name, 
She has settled back into the routine of just running a restaurant. We are very happy, she said, before pausing. Well, you know, it's stressful because there's many, many people waiting in line, and they're waiting for tables to come. Good ending. People are dumb. Don't get caught up on these little silly buzzwords that don't really mean anything other than what you mean them to mean things, and certainly don't try to wreck somebody's life over them. That's just silly. And who doesn't like huevos rancheros? Just go eat the food and enjoy yourself. I honest to God cannot think of a time that I went into a restaurant and cared one way or the other what the cook or owner was making me, just whether it was good or not. Just enjoy good life, man. Food is supposed to be good. Don't use food for politics. It's just silly. That'll do it for her, Tell. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are, and we hope you're not fussing over the eggs, expensive as they may be these days. Make sure you're following us. Something that's completely free and doesn't cost you a thing and is therefore inflation-proof. The cost of this show, it's nothing. only costs you a click and a little bit of your time. Granted, that's the most precious thing you have, and we appreciate you spending it with us. Make sure you're subscribing. All of the podcasting channels and platforms, whatever you are listening on, we're on there. Just put in Herdtel and or my name, Andrew Donaldson. should come right up. Make sure you subscribe on there, though, so we can keep track of how you're watching the program. Make sure we're bringing you good stuff, how you need to get it. YouTube channel. Great stuff on there. Also has playlists on there. Exclusive content that's just on YouTube for the video. The podcast folks, they get exclusive content. They get exclusive content like the Twice on Sunday recap show, long form podcast of everything we did during the week. So until we see you again, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll see you again soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. 
You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.